At Stays, we have holiday homes for you and whoever you call family. And by family, we don't just mean shared DNA, like parents and cousins and grandma. We mean childhood friends sharing a home-cooked meal or teammates sharing a joke. It's sharing a girls' weekend or guys sharing tough love. It's sharing time with the people who make you realise just how important family is and why you need a place to be one. Stays. A place for together. Download the app to find yours. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everybody into Garden Views. And this week we are gonna continue into our, uh, my little mission to try to speculate and extrapolate as to what will be space law one day, but by no means should, if that doesn't interest you, should you escape this show because it is gonna stand alone separately and distinctly. We're gonna be talking about Admiralty and Maritime Law. And our guest today is attorney Todd Lochner. So Todd, how are you tonight? And thank you for joining us. Doing very well, thank you. It's a pleasure and thank you for having me. No, it's my pleasure, thank you. Again, the Maryland Bar has been very generous with their time and expertise in helping me with uh, this project, which has actually gotten bigger. So a little bit about the Lochner Law Law Firm and Todd. Um, uh, The Lochner Law Firm also, uh, you can find them at boatinglaw.com for the recreational maritime branding aspect. Uh, the principal is Todd Lochner, so Lochner Law Firm, that, that you can riddle that together. Uh, he's been active in maritime and admiralty law since 1999. Uh, he was cum laude at the Tulane Law School with a maritime law certificate from the Tulane Maritime Law Center and a certificate of advanced study and training in arbitration. He was also a member of the Tulane Maritime Law Journal, uh, which is like a law review specializing or focusing on maritime law. Um, and he was published. His undergrads, under, under, I'm sorry, undergraduate studies were at the George Washington University. And prior to starting his own law firm, he was uh, general counsel for the North American Office of Airbus. I'm sure you've all heard of that, but just in case you haven't, that is a European airplane manufacturer, um, sort of Boeing's big competition. May I jump in to say I was not general counsel, but I worked with the general counsel for North America. Okay, fair enough. Um, all right, with the general counsel, so you're assistant general counsel. Well, I was at that time um, actually still training to be a lawyer. I actually taught the then general counsel how to sail. Oh, okay. And, uh, I ended up working for her. Oh, well, hey, listen, that, that's a good way to network. Um, back to the CV. Uh, this practice is based in Annapolis, Maryland. That's our state capital. The Naval Academy is there. For those of you who watch, uh, know about the Navy and Army-Navy games, that's, that's Navy. Um, no, our capital is not Baltimore. Um, the practice focuses on the issues of concern for vessel owners, marine businesses, and those that live, work, and play on the water. The practice is primarily devoted to maritime litigation, vessel documentation, and finance, Marine-oriented contracts, marine insurance, the defense of enforcement of actions based upon Maryland uh, vessel taxation, and general business advice to marine clients. Um, he's a member of 
several associations and all of that other good stuff that comes with it. Do you want to elaborate or any other corrections on the bio and background? Well, the only thing I'd like to add is I'm currently the chairman of the Recreational Boating Law Committee for the Maritime Law Association of the United States. Oh, great. So I've been very involved over the last two decades and um, in my chairmanship of that organization or that particular committee at the moment. Um, so I think you've covered quite a bit. It's a mutual gratification society here as I hear all these good things about me. But um, <laughs> with no further ado, uh, I'd be happy to talk about anything other than me. What do you want to know about that uh, maritime law? Yeah, that's perfect. We, we will move off of you to a little bit. You'll just be the, the voice piece for all things that make sense. <laughs> Before I do get started, for those of you who want to join me in this expedition of extrapolating, eventually getting into space law, eventually, because this is very much a puzzle that we're putting pieces together. And it's not entirely clear, you know, what, you know, what my speculated related topics will, how or if they'll even apply to space law. But I would recommend that if you want to be part of this game, listen to two prior episodes. One is a Garden of Doom episode called Space Chase. The other is Garden Views called The Law of the Sea. Um, Space Chase was not with a lawyer, it was with an aerospace engineer. And, and that was sort of where some of these Fun little ideas percolated and germinated, or at least were recorded. Uh, actually, I've been playing with things like this since the beginning of Garden of Doom. Anyway, if you subscribe to Garden of Doom, you get Garden Views and you have access to all of the prior episodes. So we will see if and how this applies. If nothing else, insurance and freight and shipping and registration probably will play some role into it. But the big question for you is, what is admiralty and maritime law? Are they synonyms? Are they two different things? What's the deal, Tom? They are largely synonyms. However, Admiralty has a connotation uh, of more blue water work, whereas Maritime has a connotation of more of the recreational uh, work. So there's another area called brown water, um, which has to do with tugs and barges and um, offshore supply vessels or oil uh, brigs. But in any event, Maritime, in general, is just a overview word, and those are the two connotations. They are largely synonymous. I am very curious and interested about the larger topic of what will space law look like. And you may find that, in fact, maritime law becomes the source of much of it. I don't know if you are aware of this. I suspect that you are. But aviation law shares a great deal of maritime law heritage. Um, as a matter of fact, that's what made being at Erebus so easy because there was so much of the um, overlay of the maritime law. And until recently, unfortunately, a friend of mine who I rented space to um, was an aviation attorney and he died last year, but oh. he had Annapolis's own splash and crash as the Department of Justice likes to affectionately call itself because of the uh, its avi its uh, particular admiralty and aviation department because there are is so much overlap <clears throat> so you may find that many of these topics um, in admiralty are actually going to end up moving straight into the space law concept you're referring to given that they are the genesis of aviation law effectively yeah i did have a sneaking suspicion about that and 
anyone who's listened to any of the prior shows and probably any of my shows has sort of heard how how I'm sort of trying to put the the uh, trail of crumbs together and you know because I really was speculating on this and you know so, some kudos to the movie Don't Look Up for sort of crystallizing a lot of it but I've been thinking about it for well a couple of years now and then I realized well we know exactly what's going to happen because it's it's the Hudson Bay Company it's the British East India Company that this is this is what happens and you know it always starts with shipping it always starts with you know going for resources for the profit motive and then then my joke is always after that is then comes casinos booze and brothels not necessarily in that order uh, and then comes law um so uh and and public law as opposed to private law you know you have marines you know uh, uh, garrisoned on british east india ships and you have uh, basically the, the the executives being the governor so you know, we've made a lot of mistakes before. Not we, I mean, writ large, the world, the community of Earth. And but yeah, we instead of opinion pieces, we're gonna try and piece it together. And yeah, I knew that that air law and trans, air transportation law was closely related to maritime, but that doesn't mean I'm not gonna try to get someone on that as well um, as we sort sort of put more pieces together. But yeah, but nobody here wants to hear from me. They they've got plenty of ways to hear from me. So you noted that there's ancient maritime codes still uh, cited. Now, the case was a U.S. case, but uh, perhaps it was referring to maybe it's a very old one or maybe it was referring to things that go back hundreds of years. But I'm very interested in Farrell versus United States. Well, and if I could geek out a little bit more Please. on this uh, topic, <clears throat> I was also one of my undergrad majors was history. So I have a unique interest in this as well. And we actually go all the way back to some of the first laws and codifications all the way back to 2000 BC are maritime in nature. And that was the uh, Code of Hammurabi, which I'm always butchering. Um, for those who actually want to look it up, it's H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I. Yeah, I usually hear uh, Hammurabi, but everyone knows an eye for an eye. That that was just, uh, but uh, <laughs> right. He's not here to correct us. So. And no, by all means, I mean, um, but going all the way back, we start with the civil codes and the codifications, and of course, there's some conflict which occurs with common law, which is to say, it's not codified, but the case law. Now we go and we look to back to King Richard the First in the 12th century, and you get there. A, it's called the Code of Oleron, and again, I'll spell that because it's just you know me mispronouncing perhaps, but O-L-E-R-O-N. And that one really is where the current scheme derives from. And it all starts with various countries and shipping, really, because there's the need to trade. That code from King Richard I in the 12th century is actually what is cited in that feral case. Um, and the point of that feral case is that even in the 1950s, the Supreme Court of the United States is still citing back to uh, King Richard I in the 12th century as precedent for some of its maritime. 800-year-old law. That's, that's beautiful. Right. And you will note that my field moves very slowly. When you have 800 years, that's a lot of perspective um, 
frankly, my entire field moves slowly. <laughs> and <laughs> it's one of those Einstein things, right? It's all a matter of perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so when you have 800 years as opposed to aviation law, where you have essentially less than 100 years of law, you, you look other places. And one of the places that you can find it going way, way back is, in fact, the maritime side. So that's why I speculate, and it is speculation, of course, but that's why I speculate that you may well find that um, the aviation stepstone to your space law concept is a pretty direct correlation back to the maritime concepts. Well, welcome to my little team of Avengers that is, uh, you know, because that's sort of what this is, is to try to get to get to the bottom of this and to make a, make predictions or speculation into the future. And maybe, just maybe, if the right people here, maybe they can avoid some of the uh, most egregious um, mistakes of the past. Who, who knows? Who knows? Uh, well, let's let's at least say that we have a, a egalitarian, uh, you know, progressive, nice, good-hearted, uh, warm-hearted goal in mind. But really, we're just trying to figure this out for the moment. So yeah, I'm going to let you start. I mean, you you said what's a maritime case? Uh, you differentiate between torts contracts and where's the jurisdiction um torts i mean i'll let you describe what a tort is in maritime generally it's some sort of wrong or injury to someone that is absent uh absent a contract basically typically and i think most people understand what contracts are but you know perhaps you can just give a brief overview of those concepts and launch into your you know your presentation oh no happy to do so. And essentially, there are two elements to what is a maritime case. On the tort side of it, you can have the, the nexus and the locus. So that is to say the nexus would be, you know, is this related to shipping or could affect shipping? And that's even in a very theoretical context. I mean, are we on a body of water where there are two states that are connected by the water? as opposed to a lake, which is wholly encompassed by an individual state. Um, so nexus is the where, uh, excuse me, nexus is the could it be related to shipping or navigation, et cetera. The locus is the actual other element, which is the where is this physically happening? So you can have something which physically happens outside of 12 nautical miles of any contiguous shoreline, um, which I think you've already done a presentation understand that there's a whole bunch of discussion on the 12 as opposed to the 10 as opposed to the three nautical mile um, spot but in particular really is outside three nautical miles um, of any contiguous shoreline um, I don't want to get bogged down to the details of that other than to say that with respect to torts normally a nexus uh, a negligence claim would be something like duty breach causation damages um, then you're really looking at the nexus and locus side. And contracts, you tend to look at whether a, there's a maritime flavor and the extent to which that actual contract relates to a vessel which is in navigation. Now, what does that mean? That is one of the things that has been litigated for centuries, I dare say, in this context. So is the vessel temporarily removed from navigation for repair? Or is it no longer navigable? Um, is it, in fact, in navigation? And this is one of those things that you may well find is 
ripe for speculation as to how space law might adapt something like the concept of in navigation. Um, so the space in shuttle in, in the NASA museum, probably not in navigation, uh, a spacecraft that's being repaired in, in navigation, we call it, I think it's dry dock, right? Um, that's probably in navigation. Well, I guess there's arguments if this is a five-year project and they're in month six, maybe it's not so much, or, or, is, or is that not a, a fact pattern that comes up? Um, that may well be a fact pattern, and it might differ from you know time to time. Um, you know, a sailboat with or without a mast, um, with or without an engine, it's all going to be very fact-based, but I think what you'll find is that when you get to your space law concepts that you will find in navigation has hundreds of years of jurisprudence to look back on and apply to the new realm. It'll be very interesting because one of the big differences likely is that in navigation with, with, with admiralty maritime law is that the ships that are being repaired actually usually are repaired on land, they they be they bought they bring those giant cranes or whatever and put them on land. Where in space, I suppose it's possible they'll be on the moon or Mars or whatever. But chances are they'll be being repaired, you know, fixed to some sort of a satellite or space station in space. They'll always be in the maritime equivalent, which is space, the the void. Um, so. Uh, that's that's one of the things we'll have to think about a little bit. If there'll have to be some sort of, you know, if this is something that needs to be addressed differently, if if space dock needs to be specifically defined, and and again, if they'll if they'll need to define what's substantial completion, uh, you know, or the expected time period of a job to make it navigable versus uh, it's a reclamation project. But all of that is what will keep lawyers busy. For millennia to come. That's right. And Mr. Musk and Mr. Bezos and Mr. Branson, I'm at least available, theoretically. I can't <laughs> can't speak for my colleague here, but I mean, I'm available for ridiculous amounts of money, but it is space. So, you know. <laughs> Add zeros. Add zeros. Yeah. So in, in any event, I think there's something else that in the interest of keeping these topics that might be worth discussing in your overall picture of what could space law look like. There's also a concept in maritime law known as unseaworthiness. And I think that there could be some application to your theoretical analysis. So what is an unseaworthy vessel? A vessel which is reasonably fit for the intended voyage is the general overall definition of unseaworthiness or seaworthiness, as the case may be. So you may well be acquainted with having seen uh, a little mark on the side of a ship, which is typically a circle, and then there are some lines that go up and down from the circle, yeah. uh, load, load lines and mm -hmm. limps all mark. So you'll note that one of those load lines is for a certain sea and sea state. You may find that a vessel which is perfectly fit to be in tropical Caribbean weather is not 
seaworthy or reasonably fit for a voyage in the Arctic or the North Sea. Mm-hmm. They may not be one and the same. Perfectly fine if you're lounging through the Caribbean. Not so fine if you're plunging through 30 and 40 plus foot waves in the North Sea in December. So I think that stands to reason as an easy way to think of whether the vessel is reasonably fit for the intended voyage. Now, because lawyers tend to fight over everything for obvious economic reasons, um, clients want us to fight over everything, you start to get some scenarios where a vessel could be no longer seaworthy because it has a failure of manning. And there is a uh, reasonably famous case from the 50s where there was a uh, gentleman, and I think his name was Gun Gun Saboro, if I recall correctly. It's a great name. Um, and the problem was he was a little bit crazy. I know I'm not supposed to use those words in this century. Um, words like crazy, but I'm guaranteed to offend everyone at some point, so might as well get that out of the way. <laughs> so Gun Gun kind of lost it. And um, if I recall correctly, he took a knife and was trying to kill some of the shipmates. So the vessel was not reasonably fit for its intended voyage by virtue of a failure of manning. Well, I mean, that seems like an easy way to scuttle yourself. You, you orchestrate a mutiny or the captain you know, pretends to go nuts. Well, and you have another scenario where there are some cases out there where a vessel is equipped with radar but no one on board knows how to use it ah or the radar breaks down and nobody knows how to navigate without radar so then perhaps to to move those concepts along you can see how a failure of manning could become an issue in your theoretical space law analysis so it's not just what i was picturing which are two scenarios and you said geek out before and i know it was about history but Hopefully there's some science fiction geek them in there also, but it's 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 when they first saw the Millennium Falcon and Princess Leia goes, that hunk of junk, it can barely fly. That, that's the first thing that came to my mind. Han is like, it'll fly. And then the other is in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica when the Galactica actually was being refit to be a museum. It was being retired. And, and that's one of the only reasons it wasn't shut down. Plus it wasn't, the, 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 the commander wouldn't let it be part of the internet. It wouldn't let it be wired in and had an intranet, which is was rather prescient for a show that was in the early aughts, which is a little bit crazy. I mean, not quite as crazy as that 1909 book that basically predicted we'd all be like Wally. But um, anyway, so that was the other one. Is the Was the Galactica fit? Well, I think the Millennium Falcon and the Galactica proved they were both fit. But in the real world, I'm not sure that a battleship refit as a museum would necessarily be be so easy to, to turn turn that ship around. Well, and one of the reasons that this whole concept of is it seaworthy, or as it may become known the millennia to come, spaceworthy, or whatever the case may be, um, is it seaworthy? Is she reasonably fit for the intended voyage? But then there's also an insurance aspect of this. Yes. This is where I geek out, because like I, I have arguments with people on the internet all the time, and I'm thinking about things like, event insurance and life and different companies and they're like shut up it's father and son i'm like doesn't matter two different companies there's a reason why they form two different companies obviously they're they're not on the same page we don't know what the the, the 
issue is, but you have to know that there might be one. And that's and I was like, yeah, you're like you're talking like a lawyer, like I am a lawyer. Well, we're we're naturally born as unreasonable people as soon as we receive that degree exactly. and no longer be a reasonable person. Exactly correct. Um, having said that, I was uh, I had occasion to do some sailing with a reinsurance guy out of Bermuda who did primarily just satellite reinsurance. And um, in that context that you're referring to, it was great because statistically they knew exactly what their odds were going to be of this X millions of dollars blowing up. Right. Now, take that concept to the seaworthiness concept where we start to have a wider number and therefore your statistics are a little skewed. And one of the things and the reasons that you have to have a vessel that is seaworthy when you break ground and get underway, and some insurance policies will say you're not covered if you're not breaking ground with a seaworthy vessel, is that the carriers traditionally, the London underwriters, were sitting in London writing these policies and the vessel may be in Tahiti breaking ground. Um, and certainly before the age of internet, mail, aviation, or otherwise, where you were three to four or five or six months away from having any communication, you had to know that the vessel was actually getting underway. And if it got underway in an unseaworthy state, then you may not, as the carrier, want to be paying that claim mm -hmm. for the complete loss. So you can see the direct correlation to your overall topic when you're talking about light years in your space concept. Um, you're certainly going to have some similar concepts that carriers and are going to want the certainty of knowing that you know, the vessel, whatever it may be, is getting underway in a seaworthy or spaceworthy, as the word may become, um, condition. So I'm going to try to do an analogy here, also geeking out, but I'm going to go with the original Star Trek, and I'm going to transform the Enterprise into a commercial vessel instead of a, let's call it military. I know the Federation wasn't exactly military, but forget about that. Starship. This is, this is a commercial freighter. So every time Kirk said, Scotty, you need to get us to work. Now, is Scotty sort of, you know, uh, elbow greased and, 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 you know, What's the word when you when you cut corners, when you make things work, you, you like, you know, so hot wires it together and makes it work. That might be a reason for the insurance carrier to say, you know, because the enterprise always succeeded. But in the real world, ships break down. So the insurance company might say that wasn't reasonable. That 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 space freighter was not commercially fit to travel. And thus, we're denying your claim. Well, it's not reasonably fit for the intended voyage. Or maybe right, precisely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so hopefully that was close enough and was geeky enough that, that everybody can sort of uh, get the concept there. Indeed. And, um, you know, one of the things that will also be interesting as this area develops is the extent to which liens will be attaching and in what order and what preference. Um, certainly, if some bank is bankrolling the next um, Musk Enterprise for a long-range space vessel in the context of what you're referring to, we might look to some sort of system 
where the bank knows that it's going to get its money um, and have the first right to sell that should Musk or anyone else in your the theoretical you know, space context um, default on its loans. Space so, repo men. Go ahead. Space repo men. <laughs> well, and this is a in the maritime context, text, particularly in the United States, we have statutes which allow for a first preferred ship's mortgage. And that is preferred generally, but not over absolutely everything. Um, you know, and, and it links all those concepts. You know, the vessel has to be in navigation. Um, if it's a vessel or if it's maritime property, um, there are other elements like the lien holder, you know, may not have a direct ownership interest in the vessel. So there, are, there's a whole body of law and statute out there that may well actually be useful for a direct relationship. Now, of course, statutes of that nature would have to be um, changed to include, you know, more forward thinking than ships, but the concept sure. you're referring to in space. Let's but, stay earthbound for a moment, because sure. when I was talking to Holly Doremus about the law of the sea, uh, you know, she used a, it was that 11 or 12 mile exclusionary zone where it's international water, but countries had 200 mile exclusive economic rights. But, you know, right. when you're in the middle of North Carolina, that's very easy, as opposed to when you're at the tip of the Florida Keys. And she said there was ways of drawing those lines and basically see uh, easements, I, I, I suppose. Um, but I want to make it this, try and figure out here, excuse me, because most of that was international law, which is sort of the law of the world. And there's international forums for that. Now for this, I imagine anything was the three miles where it's state law, and beyond three miles, it's federal, or is that concurrent? Uh, does, you know, because I know that there's state laws and federal laws here. And I suppose there may be times when international law could overlap as well. Could you sort of give us a, a primer, if possible, on the what's the distinction as to when state law applies, when federal law applies, and when international law applies? And is it sometimes the, the choice of the, the, the first to litigate? Ah. Uh. So, in short, there are lines of demarcation which can be found in the back of the Coast Guard's publication, um, which has on one side of the page the inland rule, and on the other side of the page the coal reg. Now, the coal reg is an acronym for the collision um, avoidance, uh, that is an international rule, if you will. So. Once you leave the line of demarcation, so for example, from Virginia um, at the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, um, there's a line with a latitude and longitude. And once you've passed that, the inland rules for navigation no longer apply. And in that context, then you move to the coal regs. So just the movement of the vessels back and forth, whether commercial or recreational or otherwise, there's a rule shift. And that shift occurs at the line of demarcation. So inside, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I think you were going. Well, there. inside the line of demarcation, you're clearly dealing with the state waters with some jurisdiction. 
um, you can be sure that if you're outside of the three nautical miles that you're outside of state waters. And for example, when we do offshore closings to make sure that no state wants, uh, has the ability to collect sales tax on a large yacht that is being transferred, we go three nautical miles plus. I always go six nautical miles if possible um, so that the cell phone still works. You can transfer the funds between banks, but you're not and you're definitively well outside where any state can say, well, thanks for that $2 million transaction, which happened. We'd like our tax on that sale. Um, so I hope that helps. But the number one. Oh, it does. Yeah. Within three miles, it's state. Outside of three miles, it's federal. And if you get further and there may be uh, overlap between federal and international at some point. Well, precisely the, the whole point is what have what treaties have we signed and what has become law, which I'm sure you've covered in your other topic. And I don't want to get into the law of the sea type stuff because right. that's that's not what I'm here for. But um, those topics and the contiguous coastlines and the 200 nautical miles are always contentious as to who has exclusive rights in those particular economic zones. Um, if I could, it, you know, again, I'm trying to tailor a little bit what we discuss in ways that perhaps are going to be most useful for your long-term putting the pieces together. And one of those things that I think may be very, very useful are discussions of the types of marine contracts known as charter parties. And you, you know, fix a ship when you're going to enter into a charter party. And I think that will have a direct correlation as well to what you know, you're ultimately trying to put the pieces together for space law. Um, if I may? Yeah, please. There are essentially three types of charter party. Um, there's a time charter party, a voyage charter party, and in the colloquial known as bare boat, and depending upon what part of the uh, country you're in, I've heard it referred to uh, both ways, particularly in Texas, as demis or demise. But in, in any event, that concept is that the charterer of the vessel stands in the shoes of the owner, which there's Latin. And whenever you hear Latin, that means if it's coming from a lawyer's mouth, there's usually BS to follow. So just keep that in mind as a general um, adage. Having said that, pro hoc um, vice is the Latin for standing in the shoes of the owner and the bare boat charterer. Um, that is when you get the boat as if you were the new owner of it for typically a longer period of time. Typically, you, and this is the key element, you are not going to be getting it with a crew. The crew does not come from the owner. The owner does not hire the crew. That is the key distinction between a time charter and what we colloquially know as the bareboat charter. And what I suspect that you will find most frequently is that there will be a lot of instances um, in your space law concepts for these types of commercial contracts um, to be put into place. So time, voyage, and then what is colloquially known as the bare boat charter. 
Well, this sort of makes sense, I think, from a common sense. I mean, it's basically charter sounds like a fancy word for a lease. The longer the term of the lease, and if you're leasing, if you're leasing the, the room in a hotel and you're also, but because of that, you have to use the hotel's kitchen and staff, the hotel really can't, can't get out of all liability, at least with third parties. And it's sort of the same thing if you're also leasing the crew. But if you're leasing the room, you, you bring in your own caterers, you bring in your own uh, bartenders and all that, there's a whole lot more chance that the, that the hotel is not responsible for something unless they were sort of directly responsible for it. So, I mean, I know it's an imperfect analogy, but I, I think it's close enough. And everybody's been at a catered event at some point at a hotel where sometimes people bring in their own folks and other times, you know, you can sort of tell it was the, it's the hotel staff. So I hope that's close enough for government work. <laughs> I love that phrase, close enough for government work. Um, it, it is a good analogy. Um, there are spots we, do, we might break down, but, you know, I'm not going to get, not going to lose the, uh, the forest for the trees by getting into those breakdowns. In general terms, that is correct. And the key element here is you, you have to remember who's in control of the crew. You're not getting, uh, to use your sci-fi context, you're not getting Captain Kirk and Spock and everybody um, unless you're doing a time charter. And then you're getting all those guys. Um, So in that context, uh, you're you're spot on. So it's dominion and control of of the people as as well as the vessel. Precisely, precisely. Um, And as I think about some other topics that are going to likely be useful for your analysis. There's a lot that will likely be borrowed from the marine insurance context as well. Now, there are essentially two parts to policies in the marine context, which have hundreds of years of litigation that go with them. There's a hall policy for machinery, et cetera, the hall, which is pretty straightforward. That's what you might think it is. And then there's something called a protection and indemnity policy. Now, when you get to the larger carriers for you know ships, they're clubs. They're not actually insurance companies, as most people understand an insurance company. They are self-insured ship owners Mm. who get together and pull the risk and there could be a call if there is a tremendous casualty somewhere uh, and all the ship owners are chipping in to their particular club whether it's the american club or uk club or whatever the circumstance may be so notwithstanding my comments earlier about the uh satellite reinsurance guy that i sailed with and his thoughts on on how great it is to be in that market. As things start to expand, you are likely to find that something similar begins to happen in your space context because it's like a ship. It's hard to get anyone who is going to pony up as a one company, big as they may be. So you may end up in a situation where you have P&I clubs, protection and indemnity clubs that form in your space law context, just like they exist in Admiralty. The guild from uh, the, the prequels to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. 
or as as younger people would think of star wars (laughs) right right exactly um so this concept of hall and p and i i think are concepts that are good to keep in mind for the topics you're thinking about where space law might go but the other side of this is that there are essentially two types of policies in general and that's a perils of the sea like an enumerated peril of the sea is covered Mm -hmm. or what people who have recreational vessels tend to see is something that is an all risks policy so everything is covered unless it's in the next 25 to 30 pages of exclusions of things that are not covered right or the other perils of the sea style policy is these are the things we are covering so tidal wave giant squid pirates covered boating while intoxicated not covered in normal circumstances but if you happen to be intoxicated but it doesn't matter because you're in the middle of the sea and a giant squid pulls you down, you might still be covered. I haven't had quite enough bourbon to follow that example 100%. But... <laughs> we'll catch up. Um, yes. What kind of sailor are you if you're not drunk? It's, it's after six, you're embarrassing yourself. Yeah, Gosling's is the, uh, the rum of choice. Um, so, grog, the grog of choice. Yes, yeah. Well, you have to fight the scurvy, right? Of you course. You have to get that lime in there. Of course. You know? It's always so, sensible. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a must. So one of the things that's really important about this and where you think you might go with this is will most policies, as, as they progress into the area you're referring to, be more like a perils of the sea? We're going to cover X, Y, Z. Or... Is it going to be we're covering everything except for the next 25 pages of material? Um, I'd venture to guess that you're probably going to start with perils of the sea type of cover as opposed to the all risks cover. Um, There are some other topics that I think are also going to likely move along to your space law concept straight from the maritime side. One of those things is generally called sue and labor. And effectively, what that means is that because ships are on the other side of the world sometimes from the ultimate carrier, you want to encourage the ship owner to take whatever means after a casualty it can take to protect the ship and to protect it from further damage so that the carrier is not left holding a larger bag than they might otherwise be holding. So Sue and Labor recognizes that concept that you want to encourage from a marine insurance perspective, the preservation of the property. And that concept, for all of the same reasons, which you can quickly take the leap, may well come to bear if you are not just thousands of miles away, but much greater distances. Sure. Um, so the encouragement there is that in the event that there is a covered claim in particular, and sometimes depending upon which jurisprudence you want to look at and policy, you want to encourage that whether it ends up being covered or not. But certainly in today's world, our much more connected world, um, in the event that there's a covered claim, then 
you can expect that sewer labor will also be paid by the carrier, um, potentially above and beyond, depending on how the policy is written from the actual limits. And just so that, uh, just for the audience, one thing we're not going to cover, even though there's a bunch of stuff on it, um, is sort of the law of wages for seamen. And there's also for the dock workers, there's the Longshoremen's Act. There's a lot of union interplay. I, I could certainly see all of that being part of a guild, unions, whatever, some sort of equivalent of, you know, sp- uh, you know, the, the, the stevedores and the longshoremen that that the, the, those kinds of interplay and you know wages and what's fair pay and you know what's workers comp and we're not going to cover any of that today maybe one day maybe that'll be another topic who knows um, but we're not going to get into the labor law aspects of it I think that's just too much uh, for for us to possibly speculate on right now just assume this. In the beginning, they're going to lure you in with large wages like you're an ice trucker. It's going to end up that it's not enough for the hard living. And and at some point, governments may try to make it better. But by the time they get better, I mean, they'll be have a lot of damage done when you're six million light years away. So let's, let's just uh, encapsulate, you know, probably decades, if not centuries of development of law and just ignore it and just say, generally speaking, that's probably what's going to happen. I'd say the only thing we're saying about that is so that we don't get bogged down is that the in my first year law school contracts class, which was very much like the paper chase movie, by the way. <laughs> um, I remember Farnsworth, I think, was the book. And I remember it was. absolutely the was. The blue one, as I recall, blue mm-hmm. cover. And it was talking about specific performance, but there was a note and it said there are certain presumptive classes of sillies, amongst them semen, who <laughs> specific performance in that context is not available. But that is interesting because semen have always been considered words of the court, like children, and needing the court's protection, like children. So that is the historic mode that courts approach semen from. And, um, you know, today's semen are not the the ne'er-do-wells necessarily. There are certainly plenty that like fit into that category um, needing the protection of the courts. But I could see that general concept coming to bear in, in the space law that you just brought up. It, it could very well be. I mean, you know, it. It sounds like a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago that sailors were conscripted involuntarily. And the term Shanghai means because the British Navy actually used to go around and club people over the head and they'd wake up a few hours later with a lump on their head on a ship and said, welcome to Her Majesty's Royal Navy, son. Uh, you're in the service now, uh, you know, and, and to your duty. So um, maybe that's where this word of the state came from, is that the centuries and centuries of uh, in, involuntarily uh, finding sailors, drafting them uh, through a variety of means. I have a couple of questions for you, and I don't know if this is in your area or not. So if it's not, feel free just okay. to say so. So country of registration and flagging of a vessel, how, how does that interplay with admiralty here on Earth? And I mean, I think it's, you know, it might be, you know, for example, if one country 
Like there is law on if a, a launch goes wrong, that it's the state of that, that is sponsoring that launch that's responsible. Now, I haven't looked into it yet to know whether that means like if, if Russia's having rockets launched from Kazakhstan, if it's Kazakhstan that's responsible or because Russia is the one doing it, it's Russia. I, I don't know the answer of that yet, but it's one of those two. Um, and, you know, I think everyone probably knows that a lot of ships are registered in Panama, the Bahamas, whatever, and probably for a variety of different reasons and probably has to do with liability laws and, and how much they are protected or, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, and that could very well be something here. Like if I was going to create Jeff Zikistan and say, hey, you have absolute immunity here for any accidents or destruction if you launch your, your spacecraft from, you know, Jeff Zikistan. And then, you know, so that I get, you know, all of the private, you know, spacefaring uh, companies and people to launch their ships from Jeff Zikistan because if it blows up and their crew and, and their staff of, you know, 80 all get incinerated, well, hey, you know, that, that, that's life. Well, indeed, I, I do work with flags of convenience, as they're called, um, typically in the recreational context. It's largely what are known as the Red Ensign states, the former British colonies. And, you know, you have to give it to some of these flags of convenience places, right? I mean, you've got Vanuatu where they're standing on a postage stamp of non-volcanic material and making money doing ship registrations. So, you know, you've got to give it to them for their ingenuity. Um, some are better than others. I have a particular plug I'd like to throw in there for the Republic of the Marshall Islands. Um, I prefer of all of the places that I have been dealt with flags of convenience, um, in the many, many places I prefer Marshall Islands over any other. So I could easily see in the context you're referring to that there is a flag of convenience place where they make it easier and they make your life easier and you're able to, to get these um, port state controls, as they call them. So you are under the laws of that country where you're flagging. Even when you're docked in another country? Theoretically, yes, but you have to you have to comply with the laws of the other country. But the flag state that you are, so your port state control, yes, you're not uh, discharging dirty bilge water and oil, all those other things, but the actual laws that you are under are those of the flag that you are flying. So that's the concept. So it's, a, so it's like a contract. So, uh, you know, those of us, you know, people who get timeshares, usually your timeshare contracts are in Virginia or Florida. Um, now, there still may be consumer protection laws in your state, let's just say Maryland uh, or, you know, whatever the case may be. So that consumer protection law still applies to folks in Maryland, but the, the, the laws that that consumer protection law doesn't provide for, everything else is covered under Virginia. And so it's still worth it to the timeshare to be uh, under the laws of Virginia. And, and that sort of applies to the ships as well. You can't get out from under local compliance and local laws, but on some of the biggest issues you're likely to face or might face, you're, you're, still, you're, you're still controlled in the laws of a tactically friendly state. 
more or less. I mean, that is, that is, again, I don't want to get bogged down and losing the, the forest for the trees, but in general context. And again, you brought up precisely the scenario. You want to have a flag state where you're not going to be in a scenario that for the loss of the 80 lives, you have to pay too much. And it's another concept, actually, that I think will come to bear. All of the ship-owning countries over the course of time have had something like this. And I'll discuss the United States. Um, there is a law statute called the Limitation of Liability Act, which allows for the ship owner to potentially exonerate or limit their liability to the post-casualty value of the vessel, plus $420 per ton <laughs> for the dead and injured. <clears throat> so if the boat goes down, if the ship goes down, mm -hmm. and you can't get to it to salvage it, its post-casualty value is zero. But if the ship was X, this just so the math is easy, right? Mm -hmm. 100 tons. And then you have a seagoing vessel and there's dead, say 100 dead, you do 100 times 420, resulting in everyone's going to get $420. Now, and that's the kind of scenario you want. However, there is, a, there is something called breaking limitation, which is that if you can show privity or knowledge of the owner with respect to whatever it is that cause that vessel to go down or have a casualty, as the case may be, then you can break that limitation mm -hmm. and get to the owner and more importantly, to the owner's insurance policy. So you can pierce the, the, the veil if you can show uh, a history of failed inspections, a history of violations, or that smoking gun. You have an inside witness or you, you find those emails or texts in the millions of pages of, of discovery that's also talking about birthday parties and you know, John seems to be hooking up with Sarah and, and all that. But in that you find, hey, Captain, you know, we, we haven't done anything for the boiler room. Hey, Captain, it's been three days. No one's at the boiler room. Cap, it's been seven and a half days since the boiler, you know, and then the boiler room blows, you know, blows up or whatever. And then it goes down. So, uh, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it, it's, it's consistent with, you know, a reasonable landlord versus a, a bad landlord. You know, it's, it's uh, being a responsible owner. Well, indeed, I just think that's one of those areas that could very easily translate. In fact, probably should translate. Again, an advocate here for if you've been doing it for hundreds of years and have jurisprudence on topics for hundreds of years, yeah. don't reinvent the wheel. Right. Borrow. That's what aviation did. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's been my supposition, and you're doing nothing but to confirm it. It's interesting because you actually talked about one of the other questions I had, and that was salvage. But I think that there's more than one context of salvage. One was what you were talking about. If the you know ship goes down with a casualty, the salvage. And the other is, you know, and, and again, this may not be your area, but if the ship goes down, you know, let's just say in international waters, we'll keep it simple. Or, you know, is, isn't it, is it still correct that anybody, whoever finds it, it's their property or is there some amount of time before it's it's fair game for uh treasure hunters to go looking well when the titanic was found it began to create a new area of law which was a bit of an outshoot from 
admiralty called the law of fines and that is a little different than the the salvage concept in admiralty typically the salvage concept is you're either in pure salvage where you're helping to save life um property more importantly frankly let's be commercial about it sure. it's all about saving the cargo and and vessel um, or a contract salvage. So when you've got the Concordia and somebody has to take it away, um, you enter into a contract with Smith or one of the other large companies to remove the thing piece by piece. But what's interesting in the Admiralty context, which again, I think will have some application to what you're referring to is what could space law look like, is that the concept of pure salvage and there's a case called Blackwall, and there are the Blackwall factors. And you essentially work through the factors and determine to what extent, what percentage of the post-casualty value of the salved vessel is awarded to the salvor, who without a contract risk their own property, their own life, um, et cetera, to go and actually save some vessel. And so, you know, the factors, as you may have already surmised from what I just said, include, you know, what's the value of the equipment that you used? How much investment went into the equipment to be able to go save another vessel? Um, how many people were involved? You know, did you put yourself and your crew and your, your vessel and their lives at risk trying to save the property of another um, cargo, etc. And so in a general, I mean, this is rule of thumb, right? But generally speaking in the black wall factors, uh, you're likely to get between seven and 14% of the post casualty value of the salved. So there's, so it's literally incentivizing a good Samaritan statute, but you don't have to be a good Samaritan. You just have to have put yourself at risk and, and put some investment into it. I mean, you could, I mean, you could be roaming the seas, waiting for ships to go down, um, and you're still incentivized to do it as long as you meet the other criteria. So that is, that, that is interesting. Um, the last question I had written down, that doesn't mean that, that we have to finish up, but the last question, and again, I'm not sure how or if this plays in, but my favorite, piracy. Mm. Ah, that is interesting. That and the letters of Mark. And that's going to be an interesting topic as well. No letters of mark have been issued either. Now, when you mean um, letters of mark, you don't mean like the black mark that they put on Long John Silver, do you? <laughs> well, what I'm referring to is it's there's a fine line between, historically, there's been a fine line between vessels which have been given a charter by a government who happens to be at war with another government. Oh, privateer versus pirate. Which is right. And so the letters of mark we received gave you the ability as a privateer to then go capture the ship and you brought it in for condemnation to an admiralty court at the nearest port um, to be sold, etc. And there's always been a fine line between between piracy and privateer. Sure. And, and I'm sure some of the same actors, you know, the, the, do both. It's just one, you need to get a, a fence or, or a pirate port like Nassau Bahamas was for 100 years or whatever. Or you just bring it back to, you know, if you're, if you got your, your England's at war with Spain, you just bring the Spanish galleon into the English authorities and, and you know, maybe sometimes you just go to a different side of the island and 
collect your money or whatever it is. And, you know, it's, it's like sea mercenaries, basically. Um, you know, that maybe sometimes, you know, are also uh, hitmen for the mob. Well, and one of the things that's been interesting in recent times, I'm sure most of the listeners and yourself have probably seen, um, you know, you have private security these days right. aboard ships, particularly those making the trek um, past Africa and going into the Indian Ocean. There's an entire area there where you don't go without ample security, without water cannons in place, those all those seas that are sort of in the in the all the archipelago countries like Malaysia and Indonesia, like the Sea of Celebs or Celebes and all of those down there, Java. Well, and there is also some piracy which exists in the Caribbean in the recreational context. There's um, there's that's, a network that's where we that, first met. <laughs> yeah, R, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's um, there's a network that actually keeps up to date all the piracy activity which occurs to keep the cruisers in check so they know where is safe to go or not go, um, which, of course, waxes and wanes with the economies of the, the local South American and or Caribbean countries. I, Too close to Venezuela is a problem, for example, now. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine, though I... Well, I don't know. I was going to speculate with all the Chinese investment. Maybe it's maybe it's safer if you're friendly with Chinese, and maybe not safer if you're not so friendly with the, the, the <laughs> Chinese. But that, that that is mere speculation. I really have no information on that. Um, was there any big topics that you wanted to address, or that I should have asked you about that we didn't cover? Well, I mean, we did a thirty thousand foot overview on several topics, um, and I think in general. My focus there was to just pick the ones that are the easiest to uh, move on to the topics that you are covering in the big picture of space law. Now, I, I really appreciate your, you know, your zest in, in, in sort of absorbing this mission, this little game and, and, and encapsulate, you know, internalizing and then tailoring the presentation really on very little notice to the, the space law thing, because we could have just very easily been on strict admiralty and then left the, the rank speculation to me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm slightly above an amateur, but in this regard, I'm pretty much an amateur. So th th this this was great. It was a lot of fun. I don't want to diminish admiralty and maritime, but, you know, the, are we, the, the, you know the, we're, we're, we're going this way. We're going in this direction for a purpose, and you adopted that purpose, and I appreciate the spirit um, of it. Folks, if you want to learn anything more about maritime or admiralty law, especially if you're willing to pay the man, I'm going to let Todd tell you a little bit about where you can find him and how you can retain his firm and his firm's or the services or anything else that you want to promote. Tell folks, if you want to be found, how they can find him. Well, as a matter of fact, I have quite a few articles on theboatinglaw.com, which is the recreational branding. So you don't even have to pay me to read all of those. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you hear that, people? A lawyer's giving you stuff for free. Well, and you know what's amazing about that? The reason I do that is because I get a lot of referrals from other attorneys. Because other attorneys who don't do maritime will come across the articles and go, hmm, I know what I don't know. I should just call this guy exactly. or send the client over. So that's why I give away the free stuff. Of course. Oh, we understand that this, that this is... 
I mean, you're not exactly in the salvage industry, but you are, you are, it's not exactly good Samaritan. You, this is incentivized good behavior. I like capitalism and there's nothing wrong with capitalism. So, um, by all means, boatinglaw.com is the branding for the recreational market. I also have some blue water work, as you may have surmised from our discussion, um, clubs and that sort of thing. But uh, I think most people in your, as your listeners, are probably going to uh, more likely have a recreational vessel than a large ship. So um, that's a good place to go. And I have attorneys barred up and down the East Coast, I'm not in every state, of course. But the Admiralty world is actually very small. The Maritime Law Association, I forget exactly how many, but I think it's about 3,500 of us in total. Mm -hmm. And of the 3,500 in the United States who are members, about, I'd say about 1,400, 1,500 are what are known as proctors in Admiralty, which is to say that you still have to take a separate exam to be a patent attorney. But the penultimate exam, the one you no longer have to take, but in fact was the last exam, was admiralty because it is so different. Um, so there is a very small group. We tend to be together on one case one day, and the next day we're adverse. Um, I have that situation tomorrow. We're together. A lawyer is going to sit here in my office, and we're together on one file, but adverse on another. Um, so it's a very, very small group. And what that leads to is a collegiality which does not exist in any other practice of the law. I mean, let's face it, most counties in the United States have more than 3,500 attorneys, True. much less the entire country right. um, really doing this work. So uh, I'm happy to help whoever wants it because I like capitalism, but go feel free to just read the freebie articles, the wet the whistle stuff um, on votinglaw.com and Quite a few of these topics, I think, will translate to your ultimate mission of what is space law. Last question. Brutus or Bluto, was he misunderstood or was he a villain? <laughs> um, it's funny you mentioned Popeye. I will say that I think he was, in fact, the villain. I will give him the villain status. And the minnow? Was it unmanned because the skipper and Gilligan were boobs, or would that be insured? Yeah, a failure of manning for any number of reasons, perhaps. Okay. Well, I, you know, I said one question and I asked two. So uh, thank you. Compound, for sir. Compound. Objectionable. Right. Sure. Well, too late. You answered. Um, <laughs> moot. Uh, the answer is moot. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your expertise. Thank you for, for playing along with the game in this mission. Hopefully you'll follow along as well. And who knows, maybe we'll call upon you for the, uh, the labor aspects because uh, you had a section on there. So I know that you're familiar with it as well. It, you know, if, if you're willing, I have a friend also who now works for, I think, the Department of Education, but for years. No, I think he still works for the Department of Labor, but he worked in the Longshoremen's Act. So I may reach out to him as well, and maybe we'll have a panel of two. Who knows? I'm, I'm just thinking out loud now. I'd be happy to do that. Um, he can do the uh, Longshoreman side. I'll do the other Jones Act side and happy to do that. Yes, as you note, um, for the listeners who may not appreciate this, earlier today, um, I happened to just pull open my lectures folder and I just randomly chose something from, I think it was 2012 mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to send over. 
but I have an entire lectures folder. So uh, one thing that a lawyer can do is you tell them how long and on what topic <laughs> and go. So whatever you want, I'm happy to do. I have a whole folder full of this sort of thing, but by all means, uh, I think labor might be one of those things that has some crossover to what you're interested in as well. I'm, I think that I'm pretty much sold on that. So great. Uh, folks, so it looks like we're going to have a second show somewhere down the line with that. I thank you again for your time. Everyone, thanks for checking out Garden Views. Uh, if this is your first time stumbling upon this show, if you want to hear more of it, uh, you need to go to the Garden of Doom feed. Uh, you subscribe to Garden of Doom, you will get Garden Views automatically. You'll also get Garden of Doom. Garden of Doom is a more alternative show. I mean, we do some hard history on it. There's also mainstream interviews like this one which I didn't really feel necessarily fit in Garden of Doom, which is why we have Garden Views to, to do more of the mainstream uh, interviews. But Garden Views, there's a bunch of legal-related shows on there. There's one on cryptocurrency. Um, got some uh, one on the law of armed conflicts, which some people call war. Um, security clearances, stuff like that. Uh, Garden of Doom, aside from history, is also philosophy, theology, mythology, monsters, things that go bump in the night, pop culture, and... Uh, you know, Hollow Earth, Giants, uh, Anunnaki, Ancient Aliens, The Watchers. So if any of that floats your boat or some of it does, you'll find stuff that you like on Garden of Doom, I promise. Uh, thanks again to our guest, Todd Lochner. And folks, please rate, review, and subscribe if you have a chance. Write a review on Apple and or Spotify. And let your friends know, because the show does benefit from referrals. So thanks again. and. We'll hear you next time. There once was a ship that put to sea. The name of the ship was a bully of tea. The winds blew up her bird up down oh, below my bully boys blow. <gasps> Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tongue is done, we'll take our leave and go. She'd not been two weeks from shore When down on her a right whale bore The captain called all hands and swore He'd take the whale in tow <laughs> Soon may the wellerman come To bring us sugar and tea and rum One day when the tongue is done We'll take her leave and go da 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 before the boat had hit the water, the whale sail came up and caught her. Hands to the side, harpooned and fought her when she dived down low. <gasps> Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. No line was cut, no whale was freed. The captain's mind was not of greed, and he belonged to the whaleman's creed. She took that ship in tow. <gasps> Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. Da 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 for forty days or even more The lane went slack Then tight once more All boats were lost There were only four But still that will did go <gasps> Soon may the wellerman come To bring us sugar and tea and rum One day when the tonguing is done We'll take a leave and go 
As far as I've heard, the fight's still on The line's not cut and the whale's not gone The Willow man makes his regular call To encourage the captain crew and all Soon may the Willow man come To bring us sugar and tea and rum One day when the tonguing is done We'll take our leave and go Soon may the Willow man come To bring us sugar and tea and rum One day when the tonguing is done We'll take our leave and go it's Value the Australian Way this Easter at Coles. And to help make your Easter shopping easier, we've added thousands of extra home delivery windows and thousands of extra click and collect windows. Shop online at coles.com.au.